Hi, you guys, and welcome to another episode of On the Slab. This week's movie is going to be the Angry Birds movie from 2016. And I know some of you guys are probably like, why are you guys watching this? Well, we're watching it because a friend of the podcast, Kevin Zune, you may know him as one of the creatives from Octodad, recommended this one to us and said, hey, let's watch this and let's chat about it. And it turned out to be a super interesting conversation. So if you're interested in how games get translated into movies, you're probably really going to enjoy today. We recommend that you guys see the movie first, check it out, um, kind of form an opinion for yourselves, and then give us a listen, because this was a really fun time. So without further ado, here's our take on the Angry Birds movie. Ladies, gentlemen, morticians, welcome to the morgue. We have a new film on this lab tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, morticians, welcome to On The Slab, the movie podcast where we talk about movies, throw them up on the slab, cut them open, and see what makes them tick. Tonight on The Slab, we have a very special guest and a very special movie. Ah, not so much. Anyways, today we're talking about Angry Birds. I'm Silvio Emery. I'm Annie Neller. And introducing friend of the show... Duke of Fun, cephalopod expert, creator of Octodad, Kevin Zoon. Hello. Good to be here. So, <laughs> awesome. So, Kevin, you're the one who brought us this movie, uh, as you are the Duke of Video Games. I kind of get there's a theme going on here, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to bring us this particular movie? Time of Death. <laughs> So, Angry Birds, like, vi- mm. video game movies don't have a good reputation. Everybody knows this. Uh, and th- this is partially a problem of adaptation, because video games also do not typically have very good stories. This is changing over time. Uh, we're starting to get games that get a bit better at writing, that get a, get better at uh, using the medium. But... Angry Birds is not one of them. Angry Birds has not been known to have much of a story or a plot. And so it is fascinating to me that they would decide of all games to make a big budget animated feature out of that. Like Assassin's Creed, I understand. It has like a a bucket load of lore. Uh, World of Warcraft, even more so. They, you know, and these are games that are reputed to have interesting stories. Not Angry Birds. (laughs) Um, so you kind of wanted to see what they would fill the void with. Yes. Uh, all right, cool. So I think we're going to talk about the context of this a little bit. So Angry Birds, for those of us not in the know, was a mobile game about throwing birds at structures containing pigs who had allegedly stolen your eggs. Not allegedly, it's shown on screen. Uh, which many people accuse, was it Crush the Castle that many people accuse it of ripping on? Yes. Crush, Crush the Castle was a very similar game uh, released for free online. Uh, and Angry Birds had a lot of the same mechanics. Oh, God, Kevin, I just realized the next movie is going to definitely have a Flappy Bird character. Oh, no. What movie? <laughs> the next Angry Birds movie. There's going to be a sequel, yes. remember? Uh, oh. 
It's gonna happen. Grown. <laughs> can can they get the rights to to the Flappy Bird? Not that anyone bothers they with don't, that. They don't. They don't. They don't need to. They just need to make a bird that can double jump. Nope. Uh, Nobody else bothered to get the rights to Flappy Bird before using it. So. Ah. Uh, yep. There we go. So, anyways. I don't even know that there's not much context to talk about for this movie. It just kind of, there was a big mobile video game for kids, and then they made a movie out of it, and there's not much to it, really. But you guys knew that this was a thing. so like, Oh, right, right. You... Kevin, Kevin, we want to talk about this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you guys knew about this. So Kevin here is a game developer, and what's really interesting that actually happened about this is the studio Rovio restructured itself around this movie. From what I remember hearing, they put all their eggs in this basket and everyone who wasn't working in the movie department was axed, not, pretty not, much. Kevin, you want... Not everybody, no. Uh, but they did, during the production of the the movie, they decided to do it in-house, uh, presumably to maintain creative control. They didn't want to uh, give it out to another studio because Angry Birds is a very powerful brand. But uh, the movie was expensive, far more expensive than any of the Angry Birds games have ever been. And uh, the studio did suffer layoffs during production. Uh, I think 250 jobs, it said, 40% of their company. Um, Yeesh! Yes. And it, like the oh. games departments were all still there. It's just that the only department to remain untouched, as far as people reported, was the movie department. Um, as as they were still in the middle of making Angry Birds at the time. Angry Birds the movie, that is. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And I do think also it's worth talking... I don't think this movie was very critically well-received, but it did make a decent buck at the bank. Uh, yeah, 44% Rotten Tomatoes, if you uh, follow that. Um, 6.3 IMDb score. Uh... 300 million? Like 350 mil yeah. domestic, I think. Uh, so gross, that's a yeah. decent bank. Okay, so I think that's enough. Kevin, let's go into our uh, preliminary examination here. And why don't you tell us what did actually fill up this void? What happened in Angry Birds? How did this go? Preliminary examination. This movie is about a bird named Red. He is angry. He is so, so angry. He is frustrated with the world and everyone in it. Uh, he lives on this bird island where all of the birds are happy other than him. They go about their daily lives. They raise their eggs. Uh, and he lives alone on the edge of the village, kind of muttering to himself about all the other people that he hates. But uh, he gets into trouble after hitting someone in the face with a cake and then accidentally breaking one of their eggs and goes to court um, where the judge sentences him to anger management class. Uh, he goes under protest. He meets a couple of other angry birds like himself. That includes Bomb and Chuck, who are also characters from the video game. Uh, he refuses to be friends with them and then continues to be angry and miserable for a while. Uh, then, life is turned upside down on Bird Island when pigs arrive. No, they had never left the island. They had never 
uh, experience the outside world. And they cannot fly. Yeah, they cannot fly. They make jokes about how birds cannot fly in this world. Um, the the pigs arrive with their king Leonard. Uh, he is like initially very friendly. He claims to just be curious about what the birds are up to. Um, but in the process of landing, his ship crushes Red's house. Red immediately hates him, uh, and is suspicious of his motivations. So the Leonard, um, continues to shower the birds with gifts, uh, throw elaborate parties for them, um, gives them a giant slingshot, which will become relevant at some point. Uh, but... Red and his friends, they decide to sneak onto the pig's boat uh, and find that it is filled with uh, an untold number of more pigs. Uh, he confronts them about this, and uh, they kind of act innocent. But ultimately, the pigs all decide to move on to the bird island. The birds are fine with this. Everybody's fine with this other than Red. He continues to be suspicious and angry. So he decides to take his friends and climb the nearby mountain to go find the mighty eagle, who is some kind of legendary bird, the protector of the island. Nobody's ever seen him, that sort of deal. Um, mighty eagle turns out to be completely useless. Uh, the pigs, turns out, were gearing up. This whole... This whole adventure is really just an elaborate scheme for them to steal the bird's eggs load them back onto their ship, and then go home. Um, everybody realizes Red was right to be suspicious and angry. They decide to build their own boat and follow the pigs to their island. They load up the giant slingshot and just start firing themselves at the castle that the pigs live in in order to try and get their eggs back. Uh, at this point, lots and lots of chaos occurs. A lot of things explode. Um, the eagle shows up again and saves the eggs, gets all the credit for it, and Red continues to be angry and miserable. How's that for a summary? Well, also, they kind of accept him at the yeah, end. Yeah. He's angry, but they rebuild kind his of... Okay. Yeah, they, yeah, they acknowledge that he was right to, to distrust the pigs and that his strategy of, uh, like, aggressively confronting them was the correct one, and yeah, they, they build him a new house to live in. Everyone lives happily ever. Oh, also the final and most important shot of the food thing is where the three little birds get to do their little split shotgun shot. Because reasons. Don't it's such they, a weak ending shot. Don't they also sing Red a hymn in his honor? Yes. <laughs> At the end. Like the little babies come out and they just sing him this song in his honor. I actually kind of like that. It was is kind of it, it's 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 the song that like the mighty eagle sings about himself. Yep. Uh, and then the the children turn it around into a song about Red. Yeah. Um, this is kind of weird, especially because and like at the at the end of the movie they build a statue in Mighty Eagle's honor for rescuing the eggs, and Red is like a tiny figure on the statue who's like weeping with joy or something. Um, cowering before the eagle's might. And so it's like, ha, huh, I guess Red was disrespected and forgotten by history, but then the children remember and sing the song. It's like a weird fake-out. It is kind of weird. 
Anyways, thank you for that, Kevin. That was lovely. So, I think... I, I do think... Like I said, it's a bit of a void that's not filled with too much. So, let's go into likes and just, like, let's kind of look at this and see how... Because like, I think that's where the meat of this episode is going to be. Certainly. It's not, it's not going to be in the plot. Um, no. I mean, as, as described, this plot was really just an excuse to figure out how to load them into a slingshot and fire at a castle. Right? Oh, like, yeah. How can we replicate the circumstances of the game? Now we begin the initial incision. I believe it's time for our initial incisions. Interstitial time! <laughs> so, Annie, I don't feel like you've talked too much lately, so let's let's start with you. What what stood out what did you like about this movie? Let's start on a good note. Uh oh, I really like the mime. I like the mime who comes out at random times and goes like, oh my god. <laughs> like, that was wonderful. Um, the mime is played by Tony Hale, who I feel like keeps coming up. Tony Hale was also in Transformers. Um, I, I really love Tony Hale. I like him as a comedian, and I love that this was the bit that he did in this movie. And that's what I liked. <laughs> <laughs> that alone. Mm -hmm. So it was. What about you, Kevin? What, what was something you liked about this film? Um, so, I like the character of Terrence. Stealing my bits! Okay, okay. I mean, go. if you if you want to get into Terrence, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I, I, like, I, I'm happy why. to discuss Terrence. You Both tell us you. why, and we'll talk about it. That's fine. That's just, that was going to be one of my points. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, Terrence is this just, this huge bird that Red meets in anger management class. He doesn't speak he just makes this like angry grumble <laughs> yeah. like, like he is a volcano waiting to erupt uh and i like this film is not big on subtlety <laughs> um but i i like that terrence is the one character that they allowed to like tell his story via like context like when they they don't they never talk about what terrence did why he's there, what his deal is, but they just have that shot when they introduce him where they're slowly zooming in on his face and there are police sirens and screams playing. And <laughs> it's so good. I was like, that's good. This is this is all I need to know about Terrence. And every every other instance of him appearing in the movie is is just another like expansion of what Terrence <laughs> Like, what is Terrence up to in this scene, I wonder? In this one, he, yeah. like, yeah, they show him, like, painting the, um, uh, it, it's that, that Sistine Chapel. Oh, yeah. With, oh, with his God. Yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah, no. I thought um, that was really cute, yes. actually. And it's like God bestowing life to Adam or something. I changed my yeah. mind. I like two things, and that's the second thing that I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, there, yeah, there's I like a weird... I expand on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, go on. Uh, because... And this is a point I'll probably come back to a little bit later, but one of the things about this movie is not that it's overacted so much as it is over-gestured. There are too many expressions and movements per shot, and it feels like they're just trying to put as many wacky things in there for kids to imitate as possible. And Terrence is kind of exempt from this because he is one joke. He is one joke that he is big, angry, and silent, and just scary as all hell. And that joke is given space to breathe, so it stands out among the hundreds, probably thousands of jokes <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. Because it's just... Yeah. He's given that time and that space to breathe. 
I'd say the closest anyone else comes to that is Bomb. I think Bomb also has some likable things about that. <laughs> you know, he, he's the closest we have to an arc. Yeah. Whereas everyone else is just, here's my joke, here's my joke, here's a second joke. I've been repeating my joke, you know? Um, yeah, the, if I were going to pick any other thing to like, uh, pig puns, I'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> I actually will say I have some issues with it, but I do like the pigs. The pigs are fun characters in that a lot of what they do is visual humor and they are kinetic and you know floppy and jiggly in a kind of very fun way like that gag from the trailer where leonard comes down the escalator but then the escalator screws up back up do it again and then the escalator starts spinning rapidly and grinding up his little assistant like those are all really fun gags how do do you feel about leonard okay leonard that's gonna have to get into some dislikes yeah all right well but um Okay, so I'm, I'm going to talk about Leonard for a second. Uh, and I'm going to roll this into one of my major complaints is, of the trio, the character I hate most is Chuck. And not because I hate him, but I don't like how he kind of exists in this context. Because Chuck is very gay-coded. Would you say that's fair, Annie? Yeah, I I think, unfortunately, so. He does kind yeah. of code that way. Uh, he, 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 first of all, he's played by Josh Gad, so... That's already going to go somewhere. But when we think, when there's a scene, for example, where they talk about, we must go and get Mighty Eagle. And then it plays and everyone said, Mighty Eagle. And, you know, Red has this flashback. And there's actually these really cool animated sequence where everything goes 2D. And, you know, you get this very stylized view of how Red sees Mighty Eagle. And he's big and strong and powerful. And he's like this mythic superhero figure. And that's great. And then you go to what Chuck sees, and he sees Mighty Eagle in leather pants go-go dancing. Yeah, he sees him as a sexy cowboy. Which is weird. Beyond that, there's also a lot of other things. Uh, he is... He does a lot of inappropriate, like, un- inappropriate touching. Uh, he's kind of bitchy. You know, passive-aggressive. And also kind of sociopathic. And even though, like... Like I said, there's a reason I said he's gay-coded and not that he is gay, because he does make this gag also about repopulating the planet, so to speak. And if anything else, if you want to take that as some kind of canonical way to look at his sexuality, then it's like, at least that puts him in, like, the kind of fictional, tropey territory of, like, the depraved bisexual. Yeah, I was actually just going to mention that that's part of where he falls into this sort of, like, monstrous, will-take-anything-they-can-get type of type of character who transgresses a lot of boundaries including space yeah and also he is the butt of a lot of jokes he gets beat to shit like there's a scene where he gets shoved through a pipe and he comes out and his teeth are all broken and falling out of his face yeah and he's kind of a willing participant in his own abuse yeah so potentially he's also sadomasochistic and finally just to say that uh he well not finally because i think we're going to come back to chuck a little bit at least but he has a literal superpower he is all powerful and it's kind of just by his mercy that anything happens at all he he is essentially quicksilver yeah he, is. he even has i would actually say he has more in common with the squirrel from over the hedge but yeah <laughs> he's quicksilver but he even has that like slow motion uh there's like a, a bunch of guards in front of a door and like in, in his perspective, everything else slows to a crawl and he runs around, like, setting up chaos and, and causing them to, like, beat each other senseless 
um, and then puts himself back where he was in a moment, you know, all they were missing was the musical cue, really. I, I really don't think Sweet Dreams would have worked for that. <laughs> no. No, Eurythmics was not the thing to put in there. <laughs> no. Um, but I also feel... Like, so, I, I, it feels kind of weird that he's the butt of the joke for a lot of the movie, where he is the gay-coded character. And I feel like a similar thing does apply to Leonard. There is a certain flamboyancy to the pigs. And... In particular, part of it feels kind of juvenile, like, ha, 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 butts. There's a lot of jiggly butts. There's assless chaps, and there's that whole cowboy theme thing. Yeah, they on. also do a sexy cowboy dance. <laughs> I have a feeling that, you know, I have a feeling someone here likes sexy cowboys. But <laughs> they're they villainous, and I don't think Leonard has a list, but it feels like he almost wants to have one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think he codes is sort of like, and I know a lot of kids grow up learning about the American Revolution in certain ways with certain images. He, honestly, the first time I saw him, I was like, oh, it's fat King George III, the Mad King. So there's like a lot of different things that are going on there in terms of voice, in terms of physicality and his body and stuff. Uh, Leonard is just, he's an interesting problem. <laughs> oh, and and he is a king. Uh, again, I, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I will also say, I, I feel like I'm the sourpuss this time around, but also there's that really kind of unfortunate implication there that his entire spiel of, I just want to be loved and accepted, we just want to feel welcome, is a lie. It is a manipulation right. of the good, innocent, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant birds, you know? <laughs> the wasp birds. Like, it's, a, it's, it's too deep, and I really don't think that's the intention, but I can't see a, it anything that directly that contradicts that. Yeah, it comes off that way to me, at least. Well, yeah, yeah, he's he spends a lot of time, like, when when his plot is revealed that there are just, like, massive amounts of pigs, like, coming. Like, that's what he says. He's like, oh, well, you know, we were afraid to reveal ourselves. We wanted to make sure you guys weren't dangerous, and we're just looking for a nice place to be, right, like... And he, he's saying it in, like, a very sappy voice, like, batting his eyes, basically. Um, it's pretty clear that he is completely full of it. Yeah. Right, which I think brings us to one of the major things that I take issue with in the film. And I think, I know that you guys had talked about this a little bit earlier when we've been chatting. Um, it's this idea that difference or alterity is bad and potentially dangerous and that's kind of portrayed through these pigs. Like, they say that they're coming with good intentions, then all of a sudden you have more ships arriving with them, um, and, like, they're saying one thing and doing another thing, and there's only one person in this community of birds who seems to, quotes, know the truth or know what their other face is like. Um... And, you know, the birds actually apologize to Red at one point. And they're like, we're so sorry we didn't believe you. Be our leader now because you clearly know what was going on. I feel like that sets a really bad message for children. Like, I know it's very young children who are going to see this. But um, there's just so many ways that difference is coded in this film. Like, it's not just coded through the character of Leonard um, <clears throat> or Terrence or Chuck. Um, it's also, we see it with Judge Peckinpah, 
um, the kind of like little owl judge who gives him the sentence, who is revealed to actually be two owls stacked on top of each other, and this is like one of these kind of like gags. I do like that gag a lot, though. I mean, it's a cute gag, but again, it's framing this character in terms of it being two-faced. It's not what it claims to be. It is masquerading as something else than it is. And that's a little weird. So, yeah, something I want to talk about uh, regarding Red's participation in this is that, at least at first, his reflexive suspicion and hatred of the pigs is unjustified. Yeah. Like, we like we know they're supposed to be the villains of the film because, of course, the Angry Birds knock down pig castles and pigs take right. the eggs and all that. But, but like, when when they arrive, like, they're just outsiders. And they are very friendly, if, like, different than the birds are used to. And, and Red, I mean, this is partially because his house was crushed, but, uh, you know, he just he just doesn't like them to start with and everything that he hated and suspected was justified by the plot of the movie well and actually i i, I do have i, I want to i don't want to say contradict but i do want to make the other side of this argument just a little bit because i think what's interesting is red is the first person to be affected by the pig's actions oh yeah uh, they break his, his house. house and they and leonard is not apologetic and so interestingly enough, i think red has this perspective and again i think this is probably not something that went into the design of the script but something is kind of emergent from it is that red is suspicious because he's a marginalized individual in the bird community so my my counter to that counterpoint is that the entire <laughs> first third of the film is about establishing how red is reflexively anger and bitter at everyone right. Right? Oh, right. No, a absolutely. Right. The pigs are but the pigs that... are not new to this. He will find a petty personal insult that you've done to him, knowingly or unknowingly, and use it as an excuse to like reject you from his life. And he's done this right. to so many people that he's just rejected his way all the way to the beach. His house is yep. not part of the village because he can't stand anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's I mean, both like these things can be that. true. That, you're right. I mean, I understand he did have a personal reason to dislike Leonard, and Leonard definitely did not apologize for breaking his house or do anything to fix it. But, like, it, and earlier in the movie, like, there's there's a sequence that really stuck out to me where um, he's just come out of anger management class, he's met Bomb and Chuck, they ask him to hang out with them. They're like, hey, Red, do you want to come with us? We're going to get dinner. And he's like, no, go away. And they follow this with a, a musical montage of how sad and alone Red is. Right? Like, and how yeah. he's watching people who are happy and he wishes he could be like them. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand why I'm supposed to identify with Red right now. Because we just watched him reject, like, the only offer of friendship he's gotten in a long time. Like he's yeah, he's that, choosing to be angry and alone. <laughs> it's it's not even a I I choose to project this outwardly, but inside I'm sad. He's just saying like he explicitly tells them, you know, I got a thing. Oh well, you know, we can do it later. It's like no, the thing means I don't want to hang out with you. Like he's not hiding in ways that he can deny even to himself. He's just yeah, I don't like you guys. You know, I I'm I'm here for the paycheck. I'm here because the court told me to be. I don't care about you. That's what he explicitly does, pretty much. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like both of what you guys have pointed out sort of makes Red more prone to accept the idea of an outside force as potentially dangerous, like, given the context of his own personality, and then given the fact that his house is kind of, like, destroyed, obviously. Actually, I want to bring up another sequence, because this is another, like, weird something about Red, is that, first of all, he is an orphan, and second of all, he has these disproportionately large, angry eyebrows. So, and that's seen as part of the reason he was bullied as a child, and that he wasn't, you know, accepted, and that's why he's, you know, a misanthrope. And here's the weird thing. I want to point out the specific sequence, because there is a montage of, like, childhood flashbacks and so on. Right. But it's really disjointed and really out of order. Uh, mm. Like, it ends on him breaking out of his egg and having angry eyebrows. And it's not like it's counting backwards or anything. It's just jumping all over the place. And I feel like that's kind of indicative of this story's lack of structure, where it's just like, okay, and we'll throw in this, and we'll throw in this, and we'll throw in this, and, uh, okay, we got to finish this here, and we'll move on to the next thing. Or it's suggesting this word... is how an angry bird is born. Well, first of all, uh, Problem Child already used Bad to the Bone, first of all. I know, right? <laughs> they ruined it. Uh, <laughs> you know, we should do Problem Child. That's that's a movie I haven't seen in a long time. But it's I don't feel like there was any point to it because they already explicitly said these things. And it's just, hey, here is a visual to the thing you already know. And it doesn't really justify or vindicate him in any way. It's just, it kind of fills time. Like, I don't feel like this script was very tight. Certainly not. Um, I I noticed this as I was, like, watching through that uh, they are near constantly just bringing up stuff that's going to be important later. Not, but without any, like, reason to have done it at the time. It, it's kind of and here's a slingshot right it, the, the slingshot is such a i brought that up in the summary because of what an egregious example it is like there's no reason to have a slingshot at the time it's just it's going to be important later you you take the the principle of chekhov's gun where you you introduce an element that that will be used again in the latter part of the story but you you like you put it on the wall yeah you use it as a about it. Here they tear they tear down the neighboring buildings and build an artillery platform. Yeah, exactly. It is Chekhov's artillery. Literally, actually. And they do they do build an artillery platform, don't they? Um, but like, and they're doing this all the time. They do it when they talk about Mighty Eagle. They just linger the camera on like a bunch of kids Eagle in school. Eagle Mountain. Um, like they're like, hey, here's a bunch of kids in school learning about Mighty Eagle. What does this have to do with the current scene? nothing but we need you to know about it we need you to know that mighty eagle exists like we're gonna bring him up a couple other times um and they i actually have a question yes how do we all feel about mighty eagle because i i have some interesting thoughts on this and i want to hear your guys takes <laughs> annie <laughs> sorry that i just giggled accidentally um so a semiotic reading of Mighty Eagle tells me that Mighty Eagle stands in for America, but all, like, the stories that we tell ourselves about America as heroic, um, the, all of the scenes that these birds see with Mighty Eagle, like, in their heads are, like, homoerotic propaganda of Mighty Eagle, and then once they get to the real thing, it's a bloated, flat, lying, um, and also, like, 
ineffectual creature. So I guess that's some kind of commentary on America, perhaps. All I know is that American audiences, like, you kind of can't help but read a bit of that into it. I don't know. There are other thoughts. <laughs> their their first, and I mean, this is in the trailer uh, a bunch, but their their first introduction to the real Mighty Eagle is him peeing Thanks. in a lake for, like, <laughs> forever. He pees forever. <laughs> this this joke goes on so long because they spent, they, they call it the Lake of Wisdom, where Mighty Eagle is supposed to... to um, Which is hilarious. Ruminate, to, yeah. meditate. Ruminate. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and so they they like bathe in the lake. They drink the lake's water. They do this thing where they're like spitting water back and forth into each other's mouths. And and Red is of course going like, oh stop this, please don't, please don't do any of this. But then, uh, but then yeah, Mighty Eagle appears and then pees in the lake. And then they're just watching him do it. And they're like rubbing their tongues and they're like beating their heads against rocks. And they're like, oh god, we drank urine water, right? And and this is like, like well okay they're being very unambiguous about how they feel about Mighty Eagle right now aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, first of all, I do want to point out like that that does have the unfortunate problem of being one of those trailer gags that yeah. you you know is coming so it's not as funny. But it also goes on way longer than I expected. It goes on and too. It, long. it made me laugh. I liked it. I I, I really did because it. Like everything else is, but it's fast and you know, just yeah. check, check, point, 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 point. This one had space to breathe, even if it wasn't very funny joke. I think it was very funny in comparison to a lot of other jokes. Oh yeah. Um, and you know there were multiple aspects to the same joke. You know everything's building up to that, but it also serves just to function like no, Red is right. Red is prudent because he's angry and suspicious and paranoid. But regarding Mighty Eagle. I'm kind of conflicted because I feel like the film kind of vacillates in how it treats him. Because in, in in many ways, he is a huge piece of shit. And half the time I feel like the movie's like, yeah, he's a huge piece of shit. Let's get indulgent in this and just kind of make fun of him. And then other times I feel like they try to portray him as genuinely heroic or rising above it. And I feel like how, There's not a single firm voice. How is that different from how people treat the United States? Can I just ask you that? Like, I feel like that has been a part of... So as an art historian who knows, like, a tiny bit about this, um, that has been a part of American political satire since the beginning of the country, is people treating the country like it's very shitty, but also heroicizing it at times, too. So it's two contradictory frames that are like almost always smashed together in a lot of uh art forms including cartoons so i i didn't really see a problem with that sort of like um i think I, I think i've approach. kind of i think i'm kind of nailing down why i think i think that he's really really good in short doses in short bursts of mighty eagle he's really funny <laughs> and his design is fantastic he's got those big baggy eyes that cheesy ass smile he looks like a 2D animated character, like something like Gendy Tadorovsky might draw. Yeah. And he's fantastic. But when he's on screen for more than, like, three minutes at a time, I, I start to feel like the joke gets played out, and you're starting to wonder, oh, God, are they actually buying this? I, I think he's too important to the movie. And especially because he's in that trailer gag. 
Because, like, the trailer gag, I think, works really well because you barely see him. You don't even see his face. You just see his actions. He's not allowed to interfere with that joke. And, you know, you get the Joker's like, ah, I'm singing songs about myself, and, you know, you kids all know this song, right? Yeah, that, that's a great gag. But, like, it spends a lot of time, like, zooming in on his face and watching him and just trying to process him. And I think it doesn't hold up that well, or at least it's not tight enough done that it feels like a unified voice. So that it gives that, me that weird dissonance where I'm like, are you sure you're mocking him? I don't know. They can, they can never fully do that, though. You can't fully go out and mock the Ur-American symbol in a kid's... Like, you would have family bloggers so far down your throat that you wouldn't be able to breathe for years if you did that. So I feel like that's part of the reason why it straddles this line between satire and a kind of, like, affection and affinity for this character. Kevin, I think you were going to say something. What was it? Oh, yeah, like, they do, they spend a lot of time, I I think, regarding the way the story understands Mighty Eagle, um, we we talk about how, how much Red hates everyone and everything. There's only one thing he believes in, and that is Mighty Eagle, right? Like, we are shown repeatedly that... He still thinks that Mighty Eagle is real, is powerful and good, and that he can help. Um, and when everything is going wrong and Red doesn't know what else to do, he's the one who decides to climb the mountain and go see Mighty Eagle. Even when his friends are like, I, eh, <laughs> you know, maybe that guy's real, I don't know. Um, and in that context, uh, Mighty Eagle is a huge disappointment. He... Like, you know, he is nothing Red imagined him to be, and Red cannot rely on him to solve his problems. And so, in that way, I think the movie was pretty unambiguous, at least um, during that section of the movie, that we shouldn't like Mighty Eagle, that he is lame, that he is unhelpful and self-obsessed, um, and that Red should reflexively hate him, too. But... He is, but also he is the deliverance of justice and the savior at the end of the movie because he is the one who physically carries the eggs to safety. He is the only bird that can fly. Like, you have all this disparaging stuff about how he's like this empty dude ranch piece of shit, and then he is the hero at the end of the day. And yes, there's the argument that Red is the architect and that he's the hero who got the credit stolen from him, but Mighty Eagle in the script, in the movie, in the factual canon of it, physically lifted the eggs to safety, and without him, the whole thing would be bust. And, like, I completely forgot that that happened. I was talking about, I was just, I was focusing on the, I think, more fun and more interesting portrayal of him in the earlier parts of the movie, but when you look at, you know, the the overall script, that forgettable part, I think, gives me some... I think that undermines the message of the beginning part, you know? Well, yeah, even, but even when Mighty Eagle is being heroic, even when he's, like, carrying the eggs away, he's still a doofus, right? Like, he, he crashes through the window ceiling, he, like, bumps his head and is like, where am I going, what's going on? And, and, you know, Red, Red, like, tells him what to do, and he struggles to fly, like, you know, 
Like, we can tell that even though he is doing the the heroic thing, he's not having an easy time of it. It's not like... He's not even used to doing it, really. And I, I guess you're right. He's still... You, you could say that it's a redemptive arc for him. Right? Like, as, as maybe Mighty Eagle is the only character in this movie to get a real character arc. Before we move on to deep cuts, I do want to talk about, I think, two more things. Uh, one... I also want to talk about Bomb, because I think among the main trio, Bomb is the only one that's really likable. He's got that kind of gentle giant coding. Yeah. Uh, he's the one that's... He's not there in Anger Management because he's angry. He's there because he has these, I guess you could call them violent outbursts. But, you know, he's not there because he's misanthropic. He's there because he has a genuine difficulty. Uh, and he's also slow... It, like he, he's like a a less pushed version of Terence almost. You know he's slow. I I'm not sure that I want to make the judgment call that he is dim witted, but almost is. You know, I, how how do you guys feel? Let's let's explore Bomb a little bit. All right. Um, yeah they they do show that he's like not not as quick to pick up social cues. He's not very good at improvising. Like, they have that joke about how he lie. cannot... He can't yeah. come up with a good excuse for, like... He right, he can't come up with a party that he's going to. Um, but, I mean, he's... I mean, yeah, he's, he's, like, he's sympathetic. Unlike Red and unlike Chuck, who are just kind of... I guess people who are bad in spirit... <laughs> Right, like they're they're maladjusted and they do wrong things on purpose. Uh, Bomb is just kind of like he wants to be there. He wants to be in anger management and to improve himself, and that that's something that you can latch onto as a character. Um, the the thing that confused me about his character is that it it feels like the arc they were trying to go for was this this idea of self control. And how he's he's not good at blowing up on purpose. Um, but I guess the question is why why is that the thing? Because why he needs to he learn how to be an to angry bird. He right needs people. to learn how to be useful in the society that he's operating. That's another issue that I have with this movie. Is uh, this idea of <clears throat> alterity as uselessness? <clears throat> So, like, the difference of being unuseful or potentially destructive in the society that you're in. Like, that to me is just, oh, that's such a huge, huge problem. Because um, that's, that's sort of one of the issues that I see with him as being this bomb. Like, you're sort of only valued insofar as you can do something to protect the society that you live in. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah. I mean... Sorry, Kevin? I... Oh, yeah, it's interesting because that kind of... Like, the, the story follows into that all the characters learn how to be violent and destructive. And and to to use that to solve their problem, like his his anger management teacher, uh, learn like just starts farting, exploding eggs. This is a very disturbing um, movie. And blowing actually, up buildings. Now that you're saying yeah, actually, that. I, I really do like made... what was her name, Matilda, I think. Yeah. 
Kind yeah, of... I actually I have real issues with the uh, character of Matilda because, like, I, I'm not too well versed in mental health. I'm not a professional in any capacity. I but you know I have a passing familiarity, and this idea of a portrayal of a mental health professional as being this barely contained, doesn't quite have a grasp on her own thing. Kind of like the stereotype of like, uh, oh, you know, homophobic, uh, you know, closeted gay person. Like this idea that you're running anger management because you are barely managing your own anger. I feel like that's very, I, I almost want to say dangerous. It's anti-intellectual like, it's very disingenuous. as well. Yeah, no, it's anti-intellectual and it's just, I mean, it's a funny gag because she, she gets to make all these funny expressions, but it it really undermines her authority and it undermines this idea of mental health in the first place in this society. And, like, it's probably a broken system, but I don't think that's the intended read. No, I mean, maybe it wasn't. And again, it's... I'd say that it's almost impossible for us to predict intentionality all we can do is sort of give voice to the impact of the film itself. That is how we're reading it. Um, and yeah, that was another issue that I had with it. It's This is this sort of um, idea that psychology or mindfulness or self-healing are mumbo-jumbo. And the people who practice it are secretly just as violent as everyone else. Um, give in to your baser desires. Give in to the dark side. Yeah, that's. Um, oh God, this is a movie where the emperor is the good guy. Yes, it is. Surprise. Let the hate flow through Again, you. That's this is the theater of imperialism, so not exactly surprising. <laughs> okay, and the last thing I do want to talk about as kind of a like dislike and a mechanical performance kind of thing is I do want to go back to this idea of the movie being overperformed because there are some historical I, I i'm an animator so this is something i'm a little passionate about but i do think this comes from like this old school of like vaudeville influenced cartooning where you look at like very early bugs bunny stuff for example like some early chuck jones about like the 37 to like 43 era i think where you have these things where like oh Bugs Bunny, back when he had, like, the round egghead, and you'd grab him, and you'd go, ah, and just do a million faces. Whereas, you know, later in his career, Chuck Jones, who, by the way, if anyone here is not familiar with Chuck Jones' work, please go look him up. He was one of the greatest cartoonists who ever lived. Did yeah. a lot of Tom and Jerry, did a lot of Looney Tunes, uh, Wiley, Coyote, and uh, The Roadrunner. Fantastic stuff. And later in his career, you see he does things where he just tries to extract as much of a laugh as he can out of one gesture. And I think those are his much better work. So it feels like an odd regression that you're going back to this style. And I think part of the psychology of why I think they chose to go for this is it gives kids many flat static images to react to and maybe to try and imitate and keep this alive in their heads. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like it's a cynical application of some very dated uh, storytelling mores. You know? Is more the right word, or would that be a norm? I'm not 100% on the term. Narrative yet. tropes, I think, and character tropes. Um, and also visual tropes, too. Like, um, physical gesture and also accents are what kids like to mimic. Yeah. So that's also why um, doing an animated film that potentially uses caricature at times as a crutch is a bit of a problem. 
Yeah. Any thoughts, Kevin? Yeah. Um, yeah. About yeah. the the overacting, about the the use of caricature. Um, I like I I do think that um, yeah. For instance, the the characters are are very thin, right? And so right. I think they're trying to cover up that lack, right? They they want you to see that these that these are like dynamic and and wild characters and and i think it's mm. um chuck is the one who is the most emblematic mm-hmm. of this right chuck is always moving always talking always changing pose um like he and and i guess they're you know you could say they're trying to cover what a weak and unlikable person he is through constant motion hey if he, ke- if he keeps um, moving you can't focus on him mm-hmm Right, and, um, like, yeah, it's like the elimination of character in favor Mm -hmm. of the the production of gags. And you could say the the, the same is true of, like, Leonard, of of Red, of of a lot of the characters, is, like, kind of sublimating them having any kind of real underlying personality. Uh. In I favor of just kind of turning out more weird jokes. Disrespect of the audience. But... Yeah. <laughs> because I, I I feel like to a certain degree it says, ah, nothing but stupid kids are going to watch this. They're going to imitate it. And we don't need to worry about making these characters likable as long as, like, they can quote them. I feel you like know? something that might have been said during the time that they were making this is, who really cares? I mean... Kids are going to go and enjoy it, and we're going to make a shit ton of money. Yeah. Like, that's what um, I felt after watching this. And one last note on the animation. I really hate the sideways mouths. They did not earn that. Because <laughs> everything... Have you guys noticed that? There's a lot of the mouths, like, in certain shots, will just be permanently sideways, even if the character's facing forwards. Yeah. Particularly, you can see that on Terrence and on Matilda. Okay. And this is a stylistic thing that's, I think, kind of recent in animation, the Peanuts movie did it fantastically, and Captain Underpants did an amazing job of that, where you're imitating a 2D style in 3D, and it's very tricky to do. Oh. And you have to earn it, but when they're doing this here, they're just trying to make it look more like their cartoons when they have a fully fleshed out 3D style. This is not a graphical 2D style, because you can do that, but the rest of the film does not support it. So every time I notice it, it irked me. So why doesn't the rest of the film support that? Because these characters are round and dimensional and they move in 3D space. If you look okay. at the Peanuts movie, it mimics the motion of the old Peanuts cartoons. You know, uh, the characters only look in certain directions. Uh, you know, it's designed to look like 2D. In the Captain Underpants movie, they're imitating the lines and the characters of a 2D characters. Like, it's 3D rendering and there's some line stuff, but they are treating, they are designing these models and these characters to face a camera. Okay. These models were designed in 3D. Kevin, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, but, um, yeah, Silvio, the the thing that I think you're missing is that these are based on the designs from the video game, um, and in the game they are two dimensional. They are they always are, flat but they like fa- that. Oh, sorry, Kevin. Um, I don't want to interrupt. finish. Sorry. And so, 
No, I mean, that's all there really is to it. I think they're trying to mock the the way the birds look in the game, and they do have that, that sideways mouth kind of no matter which way they're facing. Um, and, the like, really what they've done is add arms and legs to what otherwise yeah. are, I like, mean, squishy I see where soccer you're coming from, but I disagree. I could see it from certain angles and with certain characters, but in particular, I think Matilda is particularly egregious. Because her her beak curves sideways. You know, it's like that kind of like hook nose, witch nose kind of thing to it. And they also don't make all the contextual decisions around it to frame them and display them in certain ways to emphasize that. Like there are shots of Terrence where he's directly facing the camera, but his mouth is at like a 45 degree angle. Uh, I see what they're trying to do, but I don't think they quite pulled it off. And maybe this is me being picky as an animator. But that's just, that's my take, you know? I think that's really interesting, though. I didn't know any of this. Um, the only time that I really have a context for combining um, three-dimensional styles with a more two-dimensional flattened style is from reading about Italian Mannerist painting from, like, the early 1600s. So this is cool that this is a part of animation, too, that people are playing with um, three-dimensionality and two-dimensionality in these ways that are kind of like inflecting what the video game is doing. Um, but it sounds like, Kevin, you see that as sort of like a form of visual satire to a certain extent. Um, say again? <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, you were saying that like the, uh, like them playing with the beaks is kind of like a form of satirizing, you know, what the game is doing, like the visual style of the game, bringing that in and kind of punning on it and I, I don't know. sort of joking around with it and playing with it. I don't it. know that I would even call it a satire. I think uh, it's more as just like a literal translation. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, because there are, the, um, this is not the only Angry Birds media. There's also like an Angry Birds 2D cartoon. Um in addition to, you know, Angry Birds, Lego sets, Angry Birds, everything. Like, it's a it's a whole media machine. Uh, and I guess the, the one thing I wondered was about the, the phrase earning it. What does it mean to earn sideways mouth? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'll delve into this a little bit. Um, the thing that jumps out to me is I feel that it's and this is weird to discuss in an audio format because it's a very visual thing but i think to to earn that kind of thing in this particular context it has to be seamless and may again this could be because i'm looking at this as an animator as someone who studies these things but i feel like the seams are very obvious uh like because they definitely do have full 3d beaks they have them in certain scenes and they switch to the sideways one in particular, what you really notice is when they're facing, you know, less than 45 degrees away from the camera, but the far side of their mouth pulls back behind their beak. Each of these characters definitely has different modes of beak, some of which are full 3D and are naturalistic, and some of which are not. And when I see them, that's, you know, I, I find it very obvious. When you compare that to something like Peanuts or Captain Underpants, where there's the internal structure of teeth, but where the mouth opens varies depending on the camera angle. There are certain compositional shots you can make, certain tricks you can do to frame ways in such a way as to enhance this effect. And I don't feel like they did that. 
I don't feel maybe they did for one or two shots I didn't notice, but generally speaking, I caught multiple instances as I was watching this. And I only watched this once. This isn't like I watched it once for the plot and then watched it again to take notes on the animation. This is on a casual viewing without taking notes. That this came up multiple times. Okay, so, so does that mean that sort of like you see that visual style as a callback to an earlier, more established style of animation? And because of the way the characters are made in this movie, you just don't think that that should be physically present here? I think it's an appeal to the visual style of the game as prioritized over making the film look good. Okay. Okay. I, I think it's trying to be iconic because that's the kind of visual shortcut that would really apply well to, you know, like doing fan art of this, for example. It's kind of like how um, in a lot of anime characters will open their mouth from the side and you'll still see their lips are closed at the front. Like they'll have that weird anime side mouth. Yeah. It's one of those things that is easy to imitate and is iconic in a weird way despite being a badly done thing. Okay. Okay. That's really Kinda interesting. Dig? Yeah, that's interesting. So I think, unless we have anything else we want to talk about, like kind of mechanically what worked and what didn't, I think, are we all ready to go to deep cuts? Yeah. All right. Bit late to go to deep cuts, but interstitial time. Da 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 da. Something deep cuts. Yay. Final report. The cause of death. <laughs> so, Kevin, let's talk about video game movies. Oh, the Duke of Fun. Have at you. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think. It's very difficult because video games as a medium are participatory. Um, and that means that you, you as the player get to do the story. And there's an element to that that allows you to kind of ease up on plot as a concept, right? Because much of the plot is self-generated. Um, you, you, the player, decided to do this thing. That became the plot. Um, that became the story of your playthrough. And you can see this especially in um, games that are randomly generated, games that are open world, multiplayer games. Like, these are, are player-driven stories. And uh, when you try to translate from video game to movie, a, a, like, a format that is not participatory, that element is gone. It's lost. And it's something that you can't replicate very easily outside of a video game. I've, I've, there have been interactive movies. They've always been very interesting experiments. And you should look up the works of Frank Castle if you get the chance. Yeah. Um, because they, because there's, it's just such a, a, a weird territory that people don't get into that often. But when you then try, you remove what the player does from a video game story... And unless you have made a really, really interesting story to begin with, there's nothing left. Um, and so a game, games that aim to be like movies, such as uh, The Last of Us, the Uncharted series, or I guess, I guess Assassin's Creed, but less so, I think they have an easier time of translating back into a movie um, because the player's impact on the story is kind of negligible. You get what I'm saying? That that because you you yeah. can't influence the story that much, the story itself is stronger. And I mean, and I would say this is largely a, a matter of budget, right? Like you can't make 
an infinitely complex story that that always responds to what you do no matter how much mass effect tries and uh, 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 no, I, uh, like people try and there is some this is another place where where the experiments are very interesting and i think the best example of it is like uh, shadow of mordor where the the characters themselves are generated by the game and and it's trying to follow your story it's trying to invent a, a well-told plot made out of things that you've done but now now we get to angry birds which is a very very simple game you shoot birds at castles that's what you do and like without that element of participation and it is fun it is a fun game to play but without that participation, what is there? Um, and another thing, and this relates to a lot of the way video game storytelling is done, and this is another, this is a subject that is um, constantly talked about in video game circles, but the, the idea that video games rely on action and violence to tell stories, because it is, it's easy to simulate and it's fun to do. Um, yeah. And so Angry Birds is a very destructive game. It's about hitting the stuff, breaking stuff. Um, and we talked earlier about how how weird that it is that the, the message of this movie revolves around Red convincing everybody in his happy village to embrace their violence and hatred and to destroy another <laughs> culture. Uh, and, and that, I think, is kind of a result of the game being about nothing but tearing stuff down. When you have that as a starting point. So, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, I have two questions for you. Um, actually, three. Uh, one, uh, I, I would say, and this is kind of my own personal musings on games, is that we're starting to enter this space where, because violence is, violence and sports are probably the two easiest things to simulate in a video game. You have very clear winners and losers. You have these dynamics of violence that are very easy to simulate. And that's kind of endemic to games. Uh, but I, I feel like we're kind of moving away from that. We're getting more interesting narrative things going on in video games. I'm not sure how this was going to a question, actually. But, my, my, okay, so my first actual question then is, um, what is your favorite video game movie? Like, what do you think considered to be a successful adaptation from a video game property? See, now, this is really interesting because my favorite video game movie... It, and I, this was like a possibility that we could have ended up watching this instead of Angry Birds, uh, is Snowpiercer. And it's funny because it's not, it's not based on a video game specifically, but it is like a video game. In particular, it is like Bioshock. Yes, it is. And, and it, is con okay. it is constructed like a video game. It has discrete levels right it has it has mini bosses it has environmental storytelling it, it kind of embraces some of the strengths uh some of the the strengths of video games that are not participatory in nature um and uses them it feels like it's segmented into yeah. levels and like and because of that it's hard for me not to watch that movie and feel that it is taking inspiration from games as a medium um another would be uh edge of tomorrow also known as live die repeat right where 
where it too yeah. kind of operates on game mechanics on the concept of starting over um you if i were to take this one step further scott pilgrim versus the world yes um, yes and okay it's funny because the choir. <laughs> yeah all of these examples i'm coming up with aren't actually based on any video games they are just inspired by video games they're drawing okay. from that other medium and applying and, it to film, which is fascinating. Yeah, and Annie and I have discussed this uh, in our King Arthur episode, for example, where we're starting to see video games are starting to influence the aesthetics of film as well. For example, the the chasing fights in King Arthur felt like Call of Duty. John which Wick is a really weird way. that too. Yeah. I, I don't want to denigrate John Wick to video game aesthetics, though, because it... I, I would say not, maybe it has something more in common with... I don't like, think that's denigrating I, to say that. All I'm saying is that it's drawing upon the sort of like first-person shooter perspective in some of the fight scenes for the second John Wick movie. And I think that's really interesting. Like, we're seeing something that originally... You know, video games were denigrated for a really long time as not being high art or as being violent and therefore producing violence in culture, which is just... That's all bullshit. And so I think it's so cool that this is influencing multiple media. Okay, I think I'm being a bit too reactive there. I'm, I'm just, what I want to distance John Wick from is specifically the first-person shooter and, like, that Call of Duty, because that's kind of where we led into this little bit of conversation. I'd say it definitely does have some DNA shares in common with video games, but I'd say it's closer to something like Splinter Cell, yeah. Metal Gear Solid, Batman Arkham Asylum, yeah. Shadow of Mordor, where it's that mastery and kineticism. And it, because, like... Call, call the, the first person shooter thing, you got things like Hardcore Henry. Apparently, um, there's this new movie coming out. Uh, it's like uh, Kill Switch or Kill something Switch, like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, where it looks like there's going to have a lot of first person shooter segments. Uh, so, Kevin, I, I, I seem to see that there's a bit of a trend with what you're saying is that I don't think you seem to appreciate this idea of directly adapt adapting a video game property or narrative. I mean, I wish that anybody had ever done it well, and the reason that I can't name a specific video game movie that I really enjoyed is because I just don't think they translated super well. And I don't think it's impossible for them to translate well, just that they haven't yet. Um, and maybe they just haven't picked the right property, or maybe they kind of... The, the thing that was good about all those movies that were inspired by video games is that they didn't feel the need to try and replicate the exact circumstances of mm -hmm. the game. And, and this is that's like one of the biggest problems with Angry Birds is how hard it works to try and replicate. Just shoves yeah, it in there. Like, and to no real end. There's no real... It's not a good story to launch birds out of a slingshot. That's not... Like why, yeah? Why would you need to frame an entire plot around? <laughs> I'm sorry. It? I, I I just yes. had a thought. I just had, had a thought. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see the Angry Birds movie as directed by John Krafalewski. <laughs> 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 oh my god! You know you want to uh, watch yes. that. I would love to see that. Um. Yeah. So we're uh, uh, working back to that. Um. I would love for there to be a, a good movie based on a game property that I like. But at the same time, like, I also don't think it's it's super necessary 
because there are games developing very good stories on their own as a medium right they don't they don't need to become movies to be legitimate um mm. and and i think that's kind of one of the principal mistakes in in this quest for a good video game movie is the 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 kind of implication that that is when it will be have all it'll all have been worth it once like movie once movies can successfully adapt video games um and it yeah okay um i have a thought regarding this and i i I think this applies to multiple art mediums but it's this idea of cargo culting where we look at we look at video games we look at movies we look at art and we see ones that are successful and rather than looking at the context that creates you know, this emotional connection we have, like the ludonarrative merger that we have with a video game, this idea, this experiential thing, we break it down into plot and characters and things that are easily, like, assembled and disassembled or analyzed and cut out and called and summarized, where, you know, you have, like, a lot of people talk about Silent Hill and they'll have this wiki full of things, like, this thing represents this, this, and this, and they think those are the aspects that make it interesting when it's the play that does it. You have characters from films... And people look at these things in a vacuum and they'll say, oh, if we have a movie with a character like John Doe from Seven, we're completely ignoring the rest of the movie that supports that character, that supports that moment or that reveal. Like, that's why I think the Saw, the Saw sequels fail, is the first movie is so tight because the entire movie is laser-focused on cutting off Carrie Ull's leg. The entire thing is cut off to make that one moment horrifying and agonizing to watch. And the rest of it is just like, oh, this was about, like, the elaborate traps and how Jigsaw is so cool and smart and clever. It's not. You know? I think, and in particular with video game adaptations, I think that's kind of the point a lot of people have been missing where they say, oh, people really like Assassin's Creed. People must really like this story about uh, DNA, weird time traveling, perceptual shifting, and thing. Where it's like, it's more about, like, getting to murder people, you know? It's not just about getting to murder people. I mean, they... Yeah, but like exploring yeah, cities, yeah, the, the urban movement, like there's there's a lot like of the that. historicity of it. I think people do enjoy like finding, like running around inside of a culture, and like climbing its buildings and looking around and seeing what's up, and and exploring that aspect. And I, I exploration is a big thing in video games, and it's hard to explore a movie the same way you can explore a game. It's hard to to learn about the world of a movie the same way. Um, and so often the things that make games great are their settings more than their plots, right? Like, yeah, that isn't, well, that's an interesting mm, point. That isn't that's always a really, true, a really interesting point, but it's not, but I think sometimes the setting can really create an air of mystery, an air of desire to discover and explore. And I think that's what can intrigue people sometimes. Yeah. So, Annie, uh, I actually want to pose the same question to you. Video game movies. Any ones you liked? Any ones you hated? Like, you know, like let, let's explore this a little bit more. Because I think this is a fun topic. So, um, one of the things that I'm doing right now is actually I've been teaching my students the rule of thirds and some of, like, the basic forms of the eight rules of composition, basically. Because um, I'm teaching my students visual literacy and how to recognize this stuff. And... We sort of got into this small conversation about video games and movies, and I asked my students, you know, like, what do you guys play? And 
Um, they play stuff like NBA, they play like 2K, they play Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, all that stuff. Um, Battlefield 1. Um, they play a lot of different games, and so they were actually pointing out things to me. Because I used John Wick 2 to teach them about composition and how you set up shots. So that was partly why I thought of John Wick. Um, not as a movie that is directly drawing from video games, but as a movie that's playing with some of these aesthetics. Uh, I do like Kevin's suggestion of Snowpiercer, though. I think that's a really excellent example. I think it's very well suited to games history and the idea of, like, leveling up in games. Um, I think that's fascinating. I'm, I'm also really intrigued by Hardcore Henry and this idea of the first-person perspective in the game. Um... I have not seen the Assassin's Creed movie yet. I've only seen the game, so I can't really comment on that. I'm not so interested in movies that are directly drawing from video games because I, I do think that they turn out exactly as Kevin stated, like what we see in Angry Birds. It becomes a cash grab that is, um, while artful in some aspects, also just kind of vacuous in others, and that makes me bored. Like, I was very bored for most of this movie. Um, despite it being bright and colorful and at times, you know, like, very beautiful. Like, I could tell the animators worked really hard. Um, I'm more interested in people who are pulling from across media and playing with those ideas, whether those be, you know, like, people who are trying to do drawings that are based in video games, like fan art, that kind of stuff or people who are pulling from video games into movies, and sometimes even back. So I'm more interested in the connections across media than I actually am in video game adaptations, I guess. Yeah, that's a very long-winded explanation for me to say, like, eh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, fine. I, I'll, I'll be happy to be the trashy one. Like, I agree with all you guys' sentiments, and, like, I don't think video game movies have really taken off as things. thing. Yeah. But I will say, I will say, I think the best video game movie is Mortal uh, Kombat. Uh, 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 da, 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 Just, and I think there's actually, I, I do want to want to analyze why I think that, for one thing, is one, it does, Mortal Kombat, as a fighting game, Mortal Kombat does not have a central character. It does not have a perspective character or a distinct avatar for a player to occupy. You know, you can like Sub-Zero, you can like Kano, you can like Liu Kang, you can like, you know, Baraka. There's all kinds of stuff you can be into. So in that say, it's unburdened from this idea of having to have the Mario problem where a character has to move consistently within the brand or the image of the game. So in that way, I think it's fun in that the movie is not attached to making any character a main character and so it can and it, i think it has the most shared dna with the actual game of any video game movie i can think of in my head right now because like that was one of the big things about mortal kombat is it was photographed with live actors and it's all about like that fun ultra violence and it didn't really go r-rated like it could have but it's still fun it's about like these fun colorful characters beating the shit out of each other and that's what you get so it's not the best movie, but it's it's a good adaptation of Mortal Kombat. Uh, yeah, Mortal Kombat's a really interesting example because, like, they I feel like they found one space where the adaptation made sense, which is they, they turned a game about a fighting tournament into a movie about a fighting tournament. And, and <laughs> you know, movie, movie 
uh, movies centered around tournaments are a thing, right? Like Bloodsport, which I recently rewatched, like is essentially Mortal Kombat. Um, or you could say it the other way around. Mortal Kombat is essentially Bloodsport, uh, but with way more fantasy elements. And Bloodier Sport. Bloodier Sport. There we go. And Bloodsport with a vengeance. You can actually just take... Live free or Bloodsport. <laughs> you, you can take uh, Mortal Kombat versus Street Fighter as a, a pretty interesting example of this because Street Fighter was a worse movie in a lot of ways and didn't embrace any of that. It was constantly coming up with excuses for why the characters had to fight instead of using the most obvious one, right? On the other hand, they did have Raul Julia. They did. Raul Julia was very excellent in that movie. Yes! <laughs> but, like, you know... Rest in peace. Uh, kind of struggling against the format that the story takes place in makes Street Fighter a harder movie to, like, get into than Mortal Kombat, I think. Um... In addition to the hilarity that though Johnny Cage is very clearly based on Jean-Claude Van Damme, he turned down a chance to play Johnny Cage and instead played Guile from Street Fighter. That is very sad. That is very sad, actually. Just, you know he wanted to be there and do all those splits. Come on. I mean, he just did his splits elsewhere, man. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I think there's two... We are running a little bit long, so there are two last things we want to talk about here. Annie, I wanted to hear your kind of thoughts on this kind of weirdly colonialist slash imperialist narrative that we have going on in this movie. Um. So we've kind of hit another one of those movies after doing Transformers where um, I really kind of found the narrative of this movie again, very concerning because I think that this is part of the way in which children are socialized to believe certain things about society in particular, that they have to fit in with quote civil society. We see this from the beginning of the movie with red and all of the other uh, birds that are in anger management with him. Um, in particular, uh, Josh Gad's character of Chuck um, who is uh, arguably a dissident, a social dissident, and has runs into some trouble with the police um, and doesn't quite work with that. We have some fears going on of, uh, arguably, I would say that the birds can be read as the United States and the pigs can be read as some other colonial force. So either you can read this as a sort of revolutionary war narrative, which is weird, or you can read this in a... Um, um, in a way that I think is a little less weird, which is Americans are afraid of immigrants. They are afraid of immigrants coming into the country as potentially a colonizing force. And this is why we see the pigs arrive in ships that look like pirate ships. We see a second one, and immediately those ships cause destruction. They cause the destruction of the home. So um, I think that this movie, while a lot of people could argue it's just a movie about birds, I think that this is something called the theater of imperialism. This is a way in which, like, basically kids are socialized to accept imperialism as a legitimate thing. Um, and we should cheer for the side of the birds. The birds at the end of the movie basically all end up killing a whole bunch of pigs. Um, Truly, this is the uh, Bay like of this... Pigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, Silvio, if only Michael Bay was involved in this project, like that would be the most perfect pun of all time. I think what we have here is kind of a social Darwinist narrative of um, the strongest and most willing to fight survive. Yeah. And I just don't like that. There's also (laughs) another thing that's interesting is the birds are actually within themselves quite diverse, but the pigs are homogenous. They are all, like, yeah. beyond being they a pig, the they don't really have identifying features, except maybe accoutrements and dress and props. Beyond that, yeah. except for Leonard, none of them have characters or personalities. Well, Which... and the pigs can also be read as cannibals, too, because they're there to eat their... They're literally there to devour their young. Like, that is something that is in pretty much every colonial narrative about every society that's been colonized. I mean, you see it in Latin America, Africa, Papua New Guinea everywhere so that's just weird that that's appearing here and again i know that this is from a game it's just i can't help but see these things and be like okay what (laughs) what is going on here what do we have to like what are some of the ways in which this movie constructs a rhetoric that enables violence to take place See, that's 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 weird that's one of the things that is weirdly i think better handled in the games because in the games the pigs have stolen your eggs and you are on this righteous quest and campaign to bring them back you could see it as kind of this anti-colonial thing where, you know, you have something like the Stolen Generation where, you know, you're trying to return, you're, you're trying to, to protect your, your own. Yeah. And that you have that in this, but also it's it's gone so explicit in such explicit terms to demonize the pigs that it ends up otherizing the pigs, I think, more than they are in the games where they're just a, like, wordless place. That's kind of like how... Uh, like, a lot of people have actually made the joke that the Star Wars Lego games, the prequel ones, have better stories than the prequels because they do it silently, without words. <laughs> and so, you know, they have to be subtle and do acting. Uh, but we'll get to Star Wars someday. Someday. Maybe for, like, a Christmas someday. special or something. Um, I don't know. Kevin, have we drunk the Kool-Aid? Like, are we too deep down our own little sand pits? You mean in, in terms of analyzing the colonialist rhetoric of Angry Birds? I mean, it sounds, it's a pretty yeah. ridiculous sentence to say out loud, but uh, I mean, for sure. It feels like it's something that's out there, but I, I, mean, I don't know. It, like, I, I so often, as I've been talking about the movie, frame this as about Red's worldview. And, yeah. and, and I do believe that, like, by embracing like the way he thinks about other people that is how uh a force of new people coming across the ocean to his land turns out right it's viewed through his lens of a of a suspicious misanthrope and Mm -hmm. um it's it's really weird um i think there's like some kind of friction there between reading it as colonialists um yeah colonializing america specifically right like yeah like what what the frameworks don't quite mesh right like what exactly is it that the pigs represent it's it's hard to nail them down as any one specific force because they're both like oh no you definitely because they're both like they're somehow both more barbaric and more civilized than the birds Right. You, you know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. So they're basically just everything that is scary and wrong outside of yourself, right? 
no, they are the archetypal uh, yeah. other. Right, and that, um, so there's a really good author, I don't know if you guys have read him before, but Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, um, he wrote Monster Culture. Oh, you guys should read this. Yeah, um, it's really good, and you can find it online. It's great. He has seven theses about what monsters do. Um, the idea of the monster as kind of containing everything that we don't like about ourselves or potentially find scary. This That's sounds one of pretty species. cool. Like, I want to check this yeah, out. Yeah, it's a really great piece, and um, I don't know. That was part of what I was thinking about as I was watching this movie, too. Okay. So, um, But, yeah, I'm glad that Kevin brought some nuance to that. No, absolutely. Uh and one last point I want to bring up. Uh, first of all, to establish a baseline, I don't think any of us really think this is a good movie, right? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and like, I, and this is part of why I'm really conflicted about this because this is an animated f- movie, and by nature, that's I think more collaborative than a lot of you know uh, live action movies because a lot of animators put a lot of work and a lot of love into this movie, and I feel that this suffers from what I want to call, like, the min- the minimum threshold animated movie. In that, if you put enough money into an animated movie and you release it at the right time, where it's not competing with another animated movie, you will make money. Because I feel like Rovio threw enough money at this, hired enough animators, and by being, you know, one of a few animated movies that comes out a year, and by being a recognizable property, you got kids to see it because the audience is not discerning. For sure. Um, and because I, I feel like there is merit in this movie, but this movie does not itself own that merit. Uh, like in terms of artistic integrity, I think this is kind of creatively bankrupt and cynical and just a cash grab. And it's all about franchising. It's everything we hate about the Marvel movies. The, I mean, we love a lot of the Marvel movies, but like we, we, we can all kind of see part of us is excited. Oh, they're going to do a franchise. But a part of us is like, Ah, it's Disney building a brand and setting us up to be excited for the next one next year, you know? And this movie, I think, is just just the bad parts of that. But I'm conflicted. It's like when I see these really cool movies with this amazing production design, like Ghost in the Shell, where I think there's, like, there's these big problems with it. But I just, I want to just support the VXF crew, for example. And it's just, it makes me sad because there are some great gags, there's some good stuff in here, and it's colorful and fun in certain parts, but as a whole, I find it problematic and just kind of icky. Like, I I was bored of it, but every time I watched, while I was watching this, every time I laughed, I I, I laughed and then I felt guilty about laughing, you know? (laughs) It was just, it was weird, and like, what are your guys' thoughts on this? So, like, you... Kevin? uh, You felt... (laughs) You felt that because you disliked the movie as a whole that it did not deserve your laughter on those few chances that it that it got it out of you. Um, kind of. Like, at the same time, like, some of the gags were really good. And it's not like... This isn't like a Stanley Kubrick movie where you can say, like, ah, the director did this. The director made me laugh. You could say, like, so much of animation in particular is timing and minutia. And... In no way is one person person responsible for this entire movie. This is kind of by committee. And there are components of this movie that I really like, but I don't think their merit feeds into the merit of the overall film, as of the film as a whole, you know? Yes, I, I agree with that sentiment that you can find individual things to like inside this movie 
but that the the kind of whole product the the end result was in 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 many ways in many ways despicable like um like next time despicable me uh, 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 i mean i never got around to talking about how the pigs are just minions but uh, (laughs) yeah i actually had that exact thought i mean i'm sure they did too when they made it oh Um, absolutely oh god yeah and we'll call them jiggly minions yeah and it's you know i didn't you know i didn't want to talk about this movie because i thought that it was great (laughs) Um, I'd be very concerned if you did. Certainly, yes. <laughs> I actually think, though, that talking about um, this movie, because all three of us really didn't like it, ended up making this sort of very rich conversation about animation, video games, and movies, and sort of studios and also. Studios. And then also, um, and sometimes when you go into a movie like this, what you're doing is searching for the good <laughs> in it. And it is sometimes hard to find, like, the artfulness of the animation in this was something that I enjoyed. Like, it's bright, it's bold, and colorful, and um, they did a lot of that. Yeah, I have seen very few yeah, films that's so colorful. Yeah, so they have a good sense of color, but... Like, even Toy Story is, like, much more muted than this. This film was very primary colors, mm-hmm. very saturated. Um and there there are places where like the shots are beautiful right where it, it looks very nice um yeah like all the panoramic shots of the island are actually quite pretty yeah the island is is very nice the the environment design like i think had a lot of love put into it um and i mean i like a lot of the character designs as well like the this this side beak problem of yours aside uh silvio uh like I don't know, they're they're ex- they are very expressive and like very interestingly shaped in a lot of ways, uh, but it's true that like there there's so much going on under the surface of this movie, <laughs> right? Like just just beneath the bright and colorful bird skin like just this kind of ocean of like cultural concerns and like business factors uh, like to to even get this movie to exist um yeah. is kind of amazing but am- amazing yeah. in a the like word, I'm the not word laughing amazing, at your point. Yeah, the word amazing. I, I, I'm kind of laughing at how eldritch this sounds. Yeah, you know, it's like there's this fluffy exterior, but inside there's this twisting, writhing mass of you know. <laughs> it's it, it, it's very Lovecraft. I, I mean, love it. I I I'm very Lovecraftian, but I, to be fair, are I, you really a cephalopod? No questions. We're <laughs> podcast over. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I I just think that um, to be fair, any any project is gonna have this kind of thing. Not nothing is ever easy. Um, but I would say if this was on a spectrum though of like auteur to business, I'd say this is way on the business side. Like this is an incredible example of that. I'd say at least yes. Um, and as a result, 
when you try to look at it as, as a piece of art, it is very twisted. Well, I think that's kind of all we have to say for the moment. But, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, uh, does anyone that. have any closing things to say before we wrap this up? God, I don't know what to say at this point. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyways, I've been Sylvia Emery. You guys can catch me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller, and you guys can catch me on Instagram at Lights and Music. And we do want to thank you, Kevin, for being on once again. This was so great. Thank you for bringing all of your expertise with you. Um, yeah, and do you want to let us know about some of your social media contact, if you have any that you want us to use? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way. This has been pretty cool. Um, I guess if you feel like following me on Twitter, I'm at Kevin Zoon. That's Z-U-H-N. Um, that's pretty much all I use social media-wise. Okay. That's cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for being here. This has been a great time. Uh, please remember to like, rate, comment, subscribe. Please do leave us some reviews. It's actually very helpful, no matter what platform you're doing it on. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a great time. If you're still listening, and, well, to all our listeners, period, Thank you so much. If you enjoyed On This Lab and want to support us, feel free to follow the link to our Patreon in the show notes. If we can get enough people on board, there's a bunch of bonus content that Annie and I have planned that we can maybe start to put into production. Plus, I need birdseed money. And if you can't pledge, you can still support us by liking and sharing our stuff and telling your friends about On This Lab. It doesn't seem like much, but it does help, and we really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and good night, morning, evening, whatever time it is you're listening. Have a great one. Bye-bye.